0: Going to do something slightly different this morning. I am going to do two things. One is a little lesson on biblical interpretation based on the story of the storm at sea. And then, second, is an exposition of the passage that was read for us from the NRSV or the ESV. So uh, I want to start on the handout that you have that says explanation regarding today's session. That's handout number one, Evan, for the people on Zoom. And I want to just prod your memory a little bit. One of the stories that was read today was the story of Jesus calming the storm at sea. Jesus was asleep in the boat. The disciples wakened him and said, we're dying. And Jesus stood up and rebuked the winds and the sea. I want to ask what lessons you've been taught from the story of the calming of the sea. Uh, If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a sermon on this. Maybe you've done your own quiet time on this. Maybe you've led a Bible study on this. And of course, by asking the question, I'm setting you up. So I better be gentle with you because nobody wants to sort of give the wrong answer in a public setting One of the lessons that I have heard is that in the storms of life, Jesus will calm the setting. Um, The preacher might well say, are you finding yourself on stormy seas this day? And Jesus is in the boat waiting for you to waken him. And if you waken him, he will calm the seas. Sounds okay. Okay. But here's my question. Um, Is that lesson truly from this passage? Now, you might say, what difference does it make? Well, we take the Bible seriously, and one of the things that I'm hoping we'll rehearse in our time today during this interpretation session is just to sharpen our wits a little bit and awaken our senses about how to draw lessons from the Bible. And in preparing the sermon today, I started from a position of not liking that view at all, at all, to actually embracing it in part. And I'll share that journey with you and hope that uh, you will understand. So we're going to examine how to interpret Bible stories with greater accuracy. And to do that, before we actually turn and consider the passage today, I want to invite you to turn to the other side of this page, and that would be handout number two. And for that, we'll go down to the uh, second outline where it says, and now I can see what people are looking at on Zoom all the time. This is helpful. More on how best to hear from God in his word. So this part. And I just want to, um, to uh, read and go over a few things with you quickly. There is a range of appropriate lessons that can be drawn from a story. But there are also limits. In short, there are better and worse ways to take lessons from the Bible. Now, I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities here because God has no doubt spoken to you very specially at times when you might have just asked for a word from the Lord and you've turned to a a verse and put your finger on a verse and God has spoken to you directly from it. God sometimes does that. The problem is controlling it and knowing for sure whether God has really spoken because after all Charles Manson took his cue from uh, the Beach Boys and from the Beatles and from Revelation chapter 6 and his claim was that God had spoken to him through the Bible. So the little footnote at the bottom says true God sometimes speaks to us out of the blue from a Bible passage but that is a mystical experience that's hard to verify from the Bible itself. And then I use the example of Charles Manson and want to suggest that the best way to interpret the Bible is to make sure that we understand what it says in its context. We want to pay close attention to the wording. So one of the ways that is generally not good, and we'll talk about ways that are good and then go into our passage from this, is to do what I call the hasty we too move. Very quickly, you look for a character in the Bible, and you say, we should do the same. Or you look at a situation in the Bible and say, we too face storms in life, and Jesus is there to calm them. Now, this works in terms of application, and if you've had enough Christian theology, you stay on board with it. But the hasty we too method has its shortcomings, because after all, someone by the same method could have said, um, we too should realize that in the storms of life, Jesus is asleep in our boat, which wouldn't be a very edifying lesson, would it? Um, Or... My favorite example of this is if a young woman comes to you and says, I would really like to have a child, you could say, well, the Virgin Mary was blessed with a child without being a mother, and she was a righteous woman, and you too can have a child without having relations, which of course would be absurd. So often the lessons that we use for the we too move are sensible, but ultimately they don't come from the passage itself. And one of the tests that I think is helpful is to ask ourselves, and I have it in italics in the next paragraph. Um, Well, let me start a little bit further up. We want to ask instead, why did the writer tell this story? Did Matthew tell us the story so that we too could recognize that we face storms in life and ask God for help? Probably not. But instead, we want to ask, are there any clues in the text itself that tell us why Matthew wrote this? And in the case of the storm at sea, I think the answer comes at the very end, when the disciples askly leave us with a question, what kind of individual is this, whom the winds and the sea obey? In other words, Matthew is not giving us a lesson on the storms of life so much as telling us who Jesus is. Jesus has the authority and the power even over nature itself. That's the kind of Jesus we're talking about. So it makes the Bible a little less practical for us on an everyday level, but it also raises the theological bar and often draws our attention to Jesus and to God. And after all, we like to think about ourselves more than about God And so it's not a bad thing when a Bible lesson draws our attention to God and maybe leaves us a little short on practical application, although that doesn't very often happen. So here are some of the ways then to increase our odds of drawing an appropriate lesson from a Bible story. And I'm at the bottom of this page. Use a literal word-for-word translation because the message is conveyed by the way the story is told. By the way the story is told, you get clues. Think, for example, of a painting. Um, The painting doesn't just kind of rehearse an event, but it interprets the event. It puts something in the foreground so that you pay attention to it. It puts something in the background so that you don't pay so much attention to it. It might use dominant color as if to convey something. And so think of the biblical writers and the Holy Spirit as an artist who is trying to tell you how to interpret by the way the story is crafted. So use a literal word for word translation. The New American Standard Bible is a good example of this. Look for anything you don't expect and then try to figure out what it might mean. If there's something there you don't get, chances are the text is trying to tell you something that you need to understand. That mystery element is often a clue to something important that you don't understand. Look for what the writer emphasizes by the repeated use of words, the amount of time and space given, the clustering of ideas and themes, or providing clues, such as in Matthew 8, 27. Who is this whom the seas and the wind obey? That's why the story was written, presumably. One of the other things you can do is read what the notes in a study Bible say about the purpose of the book and of each subsection and attempt to associate the lesson you discern with what others have said. So you track the the, the development of thought. Okay, let's come now to the text. And uh, this week, I didn't give you the text that I normally have, but I have it now because the scripture passage um, is kind of translated so that you can follow the wording. And as the handout is being circulated, I just want to invite you to turn on the other side of this page that you already have to tell you what I hope we will get out of our session today. I don't want you to be confused by too many handouts. And there's a lesson at the most basic level, a lesson at the level of greater interest, and a lesson at the level of greatest interest. So decide on your own level of interest But at the very least, I want us to take away the lesson at the most basic level, and that is not every lesson that comes to us when we read the Bible truly comes from the Bible. And that the idea of the sermon, I suggest, has to do with what does the wonder-working Jesus want me to do? And the answer is obey and trust him. All right, let's read the text again. And I want to draw your attention to the things that I have put a little bit differently in bold, underlined, Because these are the kind of signals that uh, the Spirit is using to tell us what this passage is about. And when Jesus saw a crowd gathering around him, he gave orders to come away to the other side. One of the scribes came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you from wherever you come away. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the heaven nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another such one of his disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to come away and bury my father. But Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And then uh, turn over me to the next uh, line. And I want to stop there. Now, when he went into the boat, his disciples followed him. Okay, well, let's stop there and notice a few things. The text starts off rather jarringly by telling us that Jesus gave orders to his disciples to come away to the other side. And I've used the term come away because that's that's a word that occurs again and again. In the uh, in in the in the original language and it's often translated depart so here Jesus gives orders to depart to the other side. But then when we read in verse 23 now when he went into the boat his disciples followed him. In other words, uh, there's been a delay here, at least at a literary level in that Jesus said, let's go. And we had to wait for a few more things to happen before Jesus finally gets into the boat, and then they follow him. It's a little bit like going to a party with your friend or your spouse, and you say, "Um, sweetheart, it's time to leave. And they continue to talk, and they go on and on. And finally, you say, I will be waiting in the car, which is a hint to the fact that I told you we needed to leave. And rather than pester you, I'm going to be waiting in the car. So here Jesus so he sees a crowd gathering around him, and for some reason, because of the emerging of the crowd, he gave orders. Now, that's, that's unusual language. So there's something that we ought to sort of scratch our heads and say, gee, that ought to put me on the lookout for maybe further meaning. And then we see in the next paragraph a number of come-to's and come-aways and follows. And so you begin to get the idea that maybe this passage is about coming to Jesus or going away from him. And following him. So while the disciples are busy tarrying rather than obeying the orders, we get two examples of wannabe disciples, and that underscores the sense that the theme of the passage is about discipleship. Who follows Jesus? Under what terms? And why? How soon do they do it? How well do they do it? And these examples come first by way of a scribe who came to him. The same word Actually, the opposite of what they were saying before. Jesus says, come away. A scribe, in the meantime, comes to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you come away, wherever you depart. So you begin to think the theme by the word choice is about departing, following Jesus. And here Jesus gives him a lesson. Foxes have holes and the birds of the heaven nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, Jesus rebuffs him in a way. Then we get a case from another such one of the disciples. Now that term ought to catch us because, wait a minute, is this person a disciple? Is he one of the disciples? I thought he was just a would-be follower. But the word disciple perhaps indicates that we are to think of ourselves when we read about this person, or maybe this person was actually someone who would become a disciple or who had been a disciple. But in any case, another person called the disciple. Bells ring. Is that us? Says, Lord, permit me first to depart and bury my father. But Jesus says to him, and it literally says, Jesus says to him, the gospel writer is wanting to keep you in the present. Uh, like someone when they says, a man walks into a bar and he says to his friend, it, it's, it, it's, it's a way of keeping us in the story. So I translated it literally, but Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead. To bury their own dead. Well, a little scratching around, I think, suggests the following. And for here, I guess what I'm doing is I'm going to the level of greater interest and suggesting that our story, and we'll learn more about this from reading further, is about the authority of Jesus the Messiah and that um, what disciples should do in response to his authority. And the first thing I'm suggesting. Um, From the bottom if you want to go back if you can go back to the uh, the first handout uh, um, Evan and you'll see it on the thing too. That's not too much trouble. Sorry Caught you by surprise There we go go to the bottom. Yeah Um, uh, Yes, the level of greatest interest come up Thank you a little bit. Yes. Uh, further further up. It'll go. Other way. I mean, further down. Further down, I'm sorry. Further down. At the level of greatest interest. Disciples should obey and trust him well. Okay. Disciples should obey and trust him well. That is, humbly and suited for hardship. You see, the scribe thought he was pretty special, and he said, Teacher, not Lord, I will follow you wherever you depart. And Jesus, in effect, says to him, Buddy, you have no idea who I am or what you're asking. Foxes have holes in the birds of the heavens nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So a little inferring and a little bit of subtle in, uh, reading suggests, perhaps, that this fellow was uh, looking at Jesus with an attitude of arrogance and insufficient readiness for hardship, because Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. I don't have any place to live. And then the other disciple comes, and he becomes an example of a disciple who should trust Jesus above all and without excuse. He says, Lord, well, he's got that right, permit me first. My priority is to depart and bury my father. A little reading in a a study Bible would tell you that that actually is a very legitimate request, and it was one that was even commanded. But Jesus rebuffs him while encouraging him and says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The inference here is that this disciple has his conditions. Um, Jesus isn't his top priority, and he has an excuse. To go and bury the dead actually might mean um, to attend to my father while he's dying. So it's not just sort of, you know, drop him in the grave and be back tomorrow. It's um, I'm attending to him in his uh, palliative state. A perfectly legitimate thing. But Jesus says, follow me. There's something even more important than the most important priority you have for your life. So the inference is that we should follow Jesus humbly and suited for hardship. We should follow Jesus above all and without excuse. These lessons are coming, I suggest, from the wording and the way the story is crafted. Let's go now to the story of the calming of the sea, verses 24 to 27. And look, there came about a huge shakeup at sea, such that the boat was getting swamped by the waves. He, meanwhile, was snoozing. After all, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, so he lays his head anywhere he can, even in a boat across the sea. And they came to him and raised him, saying, Lord, save us, we're done for. And he says to them, why so timid, little faiths? Then, being raised up, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there came about a huge calm. And the men were astonished, saying, what sort of individual is this who has the wind and the sea obey him? So I think it's fair to guess that the primary purpose for the story being recorded, and what the Spirit wants us to learn, first of all, is that Jesus has power over nature. That's the parting question. The disciples are absolutely astounded and said, the wind and the sea listen to this guy. By the way, shouldn't we too? So the authority of Jesus is what's emphasized here and his power. And there's similar wording in verses 24 and 26, and I put those in, cold, in caps. There came about a huge shake-up at sea. But after Jesus rebukes the winds, there came about a huge calm, dramatic change. And all Jesus did was stand up and rebuke the winds and the sea, and they obeyed him. See the contrast here? The winds obey, the sea obeys. But the disciples are kind of slow getting into the boat, and other people take his time wondering about this form of discipleship, that form of discipleship. The best disciples we've seen so far here are the winds and the sea. So to take inference from that and to go back to our our lessons, which are on your handout here, I want to suggest that the lesson of this passage would be, disciples should obey and trust this one who has authority trustingly even amidst life-threatening turmoil. Now, at this point, let's go back to that suggestion I had at the beginning, that in the storms of life, Jesus calms the sea. On its own, that would be kind of a hokey interpretation. But given that the context of the passage is about discipleship, and we're given examples of what it's like to follow Jesus, and under what circumstances we can expect to follow Jesus, the point is twofold, I think. The main point is, Jesus has power over nature. And then the secondary point is, that disciples, even in hard times, should be willing to trust Jesus. Because Jesus, after all, says, why so timid, little faiths? And so the lesson for us is that if Jesus has authority over human nature, over over nature itself, um, surely he can be trusted in our little mini disasters. So I think that actually justifies the, the common interpretation of this passage. But otherwise, it wouldn't be justified. The meaning is justified if it can be justified from the context and the wording. Now, finally, we come to the story of Jesus' authority over demons, Verse 28, And he, coming to the other side, went into the region of the Getarenes. And two demoniacs emerging from the tombs encountered him. So ferocious were were they that no one could pass by that way. And they shouted out, saying, What is it with you and us, O son of God? Have you come ahead of the time to torment us? Now there was at some distance from there a herd of many pigs grazing. And the demons kept urging him, saying, Well, since you're going to expel us, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And when they came out, they entered into the pigs. And look, the whole herd rushed down the slope into the sea, and they were drowned in the waters. The herdsmen ran off and came away to the city, where they proclaimed everything, especially what happened to the demoniacs. And the whole city came out to a meeting with Jesus And when they saw him, they pleaded that he leave their region. Well, what's the relationship between this story and the previous one? Again, it focuses on the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. This time, it's not over nature, but it's over the spiritual realm. Jesus can speak to demons, and they tremble and listen. So once again, the authority of Jesus is heightened, and his power is heightened. But at the same time, there seems to be a lesson. Did you notice that the best disciples in the previous paragraph were the wind and the sea? They obeyed him. And here, the demons have no doubt about the authority and power of this man. They say, what have you got to do with us, oh, son of God? That is a rare declaration of the identity of Jesus, and it comes from these demons. And the demons, ironically, kind of function as an example to us. If the demons know that Jesus is in control and they're saying, Look, you're going to expel us, just send us into the herd of pigs, what you say we'll have to do, and Jesus says, Go and they do it. And you think, Well, wait a minute. The wind knows, the sea knows, the demons know to obey and trust Jesus and do his bidding. What about us disciples? We're given a range of disciples, some of whom have qualifications. I'm a little too proud, I'm a little too busy. Uh, I'm not prepared to live in poverty. Um, I'm scared out of my wits and forget that you're Lord. Um, we get a final lesson, I suggest, and this is this is more debated by scholars. But I think that there's language of ministry that comes here, and there's another lesson from the herdsman. Verse 33: The herdsman ran off and came away to the city where they proclaimed, that's a word for spreading the gospel, they proclaimed everything, especially what happened to the demoniacs. You think, wait a minute, what happened to the pigs is a whole lot more spectacular. But here, the Getterines are focusing on what happened to those people. They are now in better shape than they've ever been. So Jesus has the power to change lives. But alas, verse 34, the whole city came out to a meeting with Jesus. And when they saw him, They pleaded that he leave their region. Why, we might ask? Well, a huge investment had just been lost in a whole herd of pigs. This Jesus guy is a Jew and kind of scary, and uh, he's upsetting the status quo. So I think we can see from this passage, and this is really the message of the sermon, and my sermon includes how we kind of got there, is to suggest that Jesus has supernatural power and authority. And that means that we as, our, as his disciples should be prepared to obey him and to do his bidding. Not because it's some pie-in-the-sky uh, thing to do, but because this guy has power. This guy has authority. We live in a culture where, as I said last week, Giving somebody authority and obeying them is suspect. And that is why I think Mark and Matthew do what they do. They give a miracle story, then a call to discipleship. Another miracle story, a call to discipleship. And what the Holy Spirit is doing, I believe, is wooing us to the Savior by saying, this man is God. This man has control over everything. He is worthy of our following him. There's that old saying, it's an old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust and obey? I don't think so, but wait a minute. Trust him? He has credibility. Obey? Absolutely. He has authority. My friends, we are called to be radical disciples and followers of Jesus. Because it's the only sensible thing to do, given that this man rebukes the winds and the sea and evil spirits, and they do his bidding. Should not we too? Amen.